If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Uh, That's where we find ourselves this Lord's Day. If you have been with us, you know that we are walking through the book of Genesis. If you are new to Bloomfield today, we are grateful you're here. And uh, would like to ask you to fill out the pew pad. If it's not been passed around already, those are in the aisles. And that way we can know more about your attendance. We can know more about prayer requests. Uh, If you've not been with us, it's important that you understand, uh, I didn't just pick Genesis 19, 30-38 for today. Uh, It's actually a very difficult text because it it deals with some pretty wicked things. But we have come to this text because we've been walking through Genesis. Uh, This is a text that you come to in the scripture and find that even among commentators, there's not a lot written about it uh, because it deals with a pretty uh, wicked situation. Uh, We've already seen the wickedness of Sodom uh, that Lot has been pulled out of with his daughters. And we know that there was great wickedness there. And then that continues in what we read about in today's text. But we're going to look at it because God has given us his word for a reason. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And in order to receive that training, it's important that we look at what all of Scripture teaches and that we remember what it is that God has saved us from. You know, it's easy for us to gather and celebrate the gospel without really thinking what it is the gospel has brought us out of. And much like many times we celebrate holidays without really knowing what they are for. Uh, for example, tomorrow is Labor Day. And uh, for some of us, it's a day when we just gather and we take a day off and we have a cookout and spend time with friends. But a lot of us don't know that that actually goes back to the late 1800s. Labor Day became a holiday because there was a conflict, there was a strife. Uh, This was in the days of railroad expansion in the late 1800s. And as the railroad was expanding west, uh, there was a labor dispute over wages. And so the railroad workers decided to strike. And this was pretty major in that day and age because this was the main means of transport and so it actually halted the nation's economy uh, to the point that the president had to send in uh, the National Guard. Uh, There was conflict, there was strife, people actually died in the midst of it. And when it was finally settled and they came to an agreement and work resumed in order to appease those workers, President Cleveland, who was the president at the time, rushed through Congress a national holiday to celebrate the spirit of the laborer. And that's how we ended up with Labor Day. And we celebrate it all the time without really knowing what it is we're celebrating. In much the same way as Christians, we can talk about the gospel, we can talk about celebrating the gospel without really understanding what the gospel does for us. And so it's important that we understand that the gospel is Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sin, and that we understand the depth and the depravity of sin. Because when we see the great wickedness of sin and how dark it really is, the gospel shines that much brighter. And that's why we're going to look at texts like today. And this is one that certainly shows us where sin will take us. And so if you would, follow along with me as we read through these verses. Genesis chapter 19 verses 30 through 38. If you were with us last Lord's Day, you know that God has destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for its wickedness. 
He has literally, through the angels, pulled Lot and his daughters out of Sodom and his wife, but she turns back. She is consumed in the wrath that falls on Sodom. The angels tell Lot to go to the hills. He essentially refuses. He wants to go settle in a city named Zor. And that's where we pick up today, is with him actually fleeing from Zor. Verse 30, this is what God's inspired word says to us. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, and we will preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, that night also. The younger arose and lay with him and did not know when she had, he did not know when she had lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn, the firstborn a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. If you would, pray with me for our time in God's Word. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Having just read a text that describes the wickedness, the perversion that took place between Lot and his daughters following the events of Sodom, Lord, it is a picture of the places our sin will take us. And Lord, it is easy for us to sit and read it And look at it as if it's some far off distant place and thing that we cannot imagine. And yet, Lord, the Scripture tells us to look to our own heart. And there is depth of sin there. So, Lord, I pray You would deal with us today. Lord, that You would uproot us today. Lord, that You would dig down deep within us and call us to repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray this Lord's day that You would show us the hope that the Gospel brings to each and every one of us. Pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. As I've already mentioned, this is a text that many would skip over, and yet it is the text God has put before us, and I believe there is purpose in it, because this is a text that helps us understand where sin takes us. And ultimately, this is a text through which I think we can see the glory of the gospel. And I hope that you'll see that today as we walk through it. We're going to walk through it first by looking at where sin takes us. And we begin with this, point one in your notes there. Sin leads to death. This is what we have seen throughout Genesis. This is what we see in Lot's life. Sin leads to death. The Scripture tells us that when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, that that with that came not only knowledge of sin, but came death. And the curse, God says to Adam, you came from the dust and now you're going to return to the dust. And death enters the picture, so we know there is physical death that is a consequence of sin. 
But we also see in the Scripture that the effects of sin in our life, when we pursue it, it is a, a death entirely of itself. It, it brings ruin to our lives. James says it this way. This is a verse I alluded to last week. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Uh, this is the sequence. This is the process. This is the digression that we have seen in Lot's life. It started with a, a luring, an enticement of sin. Uh, we know in Genesis that Lot, when he had the decision of where he would settle, when he was in that conversation with Abraham, there's not enough land to support both of their livestock and their herdsmen. We know that Lot chose to go towards Sodom. There was something about Sodom that enticed him. Now, it's easy for us to read on this side and go, what would entice him about such a, a wicked place? But there was something there that was pulling him in. And so Lot moves close to Sodom. Then eventually he moves into Sodom. Then he gets to a point where he's at the gate of Sodom, which as I mentioned last week, that, that would have been a position of authority in that city. And so we see Lot walking through what James says. He's enticed by sin. He's lured towards sin. And ultimately, he finds himself in the compromising situation that we see him in today in this text. It's interesting as a side note to think about that this is Lot on the heels of being rescued by God. <laughs> I mean, Lot has just seen God destroy a city and he has rescued him from that. And then we see this great sin. It, it reminds us of Noah. Uh, Noah's preserved by God in the ark. He's sealed up from God's wrath that falls on the earth. And what does he do? He gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard and he grows the wine and he gets drunk and, and he too sins. It, it reminds us of our own hearts. We experience the joy of salvation, we, we celebrate it, but then it's very easy to leave this place and to walk right in to sin. And that's why we need to look to texts like this one today that, that warn us about the danger of sin, that warn us about how sin entices us, how it lures us. I shared the illustration last Lord's Day about going fishing and remembering a time when I caught a fish that, that literally had a, another hook in its mouth. You're talking about how you would think the fish would learn from that. Well, my dad and Parker and I went fishing Friday, and sure enough, we caught a fish that had another hook in its mouth. My dad said, my preacher just talked about this. And that, that fish went for a bait, found that it had a hook, somehow managed to break a line, only to turn around, perhaps moments, perhaps days or weeks later, and do the same thing over again. And it's easy to look at that fish and say, well, fish, you're just foolish. And then you look in the mirror. How many times have you done something and said, I'll never do this again, only to find yourself in that same spot all over again? Friends, sin has a pull to it. It has an enticement to it. It has a desire to it. That's why we go back to it. And that's what we see in Lot's life. But the danger is this. When we move towards sin, we move deeper and deeper and deeper in sin. And sin takes us places we never intended to go. 
And sin cost us more than we ever thought we would pay. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, says it this way in Proverbs 7. He describes a young man who he says, a young man lacking sense. He walks into a compromising situation, into an adulterous relationship, and Solomon basically says, this is going to kill him, but this is how he says it. Little does he know it will cost him his life. Like a bird hastens to a snare, like an ox is led away to slaughter. That's the picture the Scripture gives us of how we are lured, are enticed in our sin. That's the picture we have of Lot here. We pick up in verse 30 to find that the very city that Lot had told the angels he wanted to go settle in, he is now fleeing. Now the Scripture doesn't tell us why he's leaving Zor. You can only imagine the reasons. I mean, he has just come from Sodom, which has been incinerated. And I'm sure when he shows up to Zor, they're probably not real excited he's there. You know, well, you're from Sodom and we saw what God did to Sodom. So you just keep moving on, Lot. Or maybe it's just Lot's own fears. You see this about Lot. You see this about ourselves. When people don't trust God, they just run from situation to situation. They run, they're, they're, they're led by fear. And Lot here is led by fear. He stays in Sodom in the midst of this great sin, and he is likely scared of what will happen to him if he ever stands up and says, these people are wicked. And when he finally does it, they look at him and say, who are you to judge us? And then for whatever reason, he is scared to leave Sodom. The angels have to literally drag him out. And they tell him to go to the hills. Now, if you look at a map, Sodom and Gomorrah is in a valley. And over on one side of that valley is the hills of Mamre. That, that's where Abraham is during all this. If you remember, Abraham with the Lord and the angels, he actually walks out there. He is looking out over Sodom. He's having this conversation with the Lord about, Lord, will you spare them if there's 50 righteous, if there's 45 righteous, if there's 40? That's all taking place up on the hills of Mamre. And when the angels tell Lot to leave Sodom and go to the hills, I, I think they're probably telling him, Go back to Abraham. Abraham is where the promise is. Abraham is where God's going to provide for you, Lot. But Lot doesn't want to go back to Abraham. In fact, Lot moves to another city. And then in fleeing that city, the Scripture just simply tells us he goes to the hills. Now, some commentators read that and say, well, Lot has finally come to his senses and now he's moving back towards Abraham. I don't think that's the case because... There's nothing in this text that would indicate Lot has come to any sense at all. What we see in this text is his further sin from Lot. I think that's what is likely is that Lot's moving further away from Abraham. He's probably going to the hills on the other side of the valley. Maybe Lot feels like he can't go back. You ever feel that way? That you've sinned, you've disappointed, and you just can't go back. We'll come back to that. But the gospel can save anyone. So we see Lot in this situation where he wanted to hold on to everything and he essentially dies with nothing. But it's not just him that his sin affects. Point two, we see in this text that our sin impacts everyone around us. See, Lot's sin not only affected him, it greatly affected his daughters and put them in this wicked situation, one that I probably don't need to detail or explain a lot about. It's just perverse when you read it. 
It begs the question, how did Lot's daughters end up this way to think this was a rational, logical answer to their desire to have children? And then you look at what they came out of. Lot chose to raise his daughters in Sodom in a place of great wickedness. And so it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, look at where they came from. I mean, they were exposed to so much sin. So certainly they're going to do that sin. They're going to replicate what they saw. But I think this goes deeper than that because if all this text is telling us is that if we raise our children in a sinful, sinful culture then they're going to replicate that great sin. If that's what this text is saying to us, then we don't have much hope today. Because look at the culture we are raising our children in. Look look at the sin that is paraded around us. Just pick a channel to turn on when you go home. Just pick up the paper, turn on the radio, and you will be exposed to the depravity of man. And if all the Scripture has to offer us is the conclusion that if you raise your children in a culture of sin, then they will replicate it, then there's not much hope there. But I think the Scripture offers us something else. See, I think Lot's greatest failure is not just that he raised his daughters in Sodom. I think his greatest failure is he never taught them about the ways of God And he never taught them where all this sin was coming from and gave them a biblical grid to understand it. This is what I mean by this, because I think we do this today. It's very easy for us in the church to try to raise our children in a cocoon, in a bubble. And to think, if I can just cover their eyes and their ears enough and walk behind them through the course of their life, then I'll keep them from being exposed to sin. But friends, you can't and I can't keep our children from being exposed to sin. And where we so often err is when they are exposed to sin, we don't give them a biblical grid to understand that sin. And so they come home from school and we sit down to eat. And one of them says, well, you'll never guess what Bobby said to me at school today and You really don't want to ask, but you do. What did Bobby say? And then they say it. And you go, oh, well, what would you like for dessert now? And Maybe we should eat dinner in front of the TV. And and you just try to change the subject real quick. Or or, or they, they hear something and they ask you about it. And rather than helping them understand it biblically, you you just get embarrassed and you kind of move on. And and here's what happens with that. They're going to find an answer somewhere. I read a disturbing report this week of a young woman, a pastor's daughter, who was now speaking to youth about her own addictions she had to images on the internet. And that addiction for her grew out of this. She started hearing things at school and she didn't know what they were. And so she got on Google search and started looking up terms. And with those terms came images and So I read this article by her. I learned some things I didn't know. One of them was the great perversion that's out there on the internet. The number one way that our children are introduced to it right now is through web searches for terms they don't understand. Do you see that? Do you see the bait there? 
That, that hook is so cleverly disguised. And our children wanting to understand something they don't understand, they simply click on a button and that leads them down a path that can ruin them. And parents, we need to be aware and we need to teach them. We need to engage them. You need to ask your children, your grandchildren, if you've not already, what have you heard that you don't understand and talk to them about it through the lens of Scripture? Because if the only thing you say to them is, well, that is sin, and sin is bad, so do not sin, then you and I fail them. Because here's what happens. They're going to sin. And when they sin, they're going to feel bad. And when they feel bad, they're going to think about how bad you're going to think they are, so they're not going to talk to you about their sin. But they'll find someone to talk to about it. Likely someone who doesn't have a biblical worldview. Someone who will tell them sin isn't really sin to begin with and make them feel out a whole lot better about it. See, where we fall short is we don't help our children understand what the Scripture says about sin. The Scripture says sin is pleasurable for a season. Sin is fun. We, we enjoy it. That's why we do it. And don't fall into the lie of thinking that Oh, well, my parents said it was bad, but it's fun, so it must be okay. No, that's the hook. It ends in death. And what we need to do is sit down with our children and walk through what Bobby talked about, because Bobby probably doesn't understand what he's even saying. And help them understand where sin takes us in the Scripture and take them back to the garden and take them back to the temptation that Adam and Eve faced. And the consequence of it. And sin leads to death. And help them understand that we serve a God who is not content with allowing us to just be separated for eternity from Him because of our sin. But in His grace and love for us, Christ went to the cross to die for our sin. That we might now have right fellowship with Him. We need to help them understand not only do they need to talk to us about sin, they need to talk to their Heavenly Father about sin. And yes, sin is bad and sin grieves his heart. But what he calls us to do in our sin is come to him, not run from him. And if we don't learn how to do that, then we end up where Lot's at. In a cave with his daughters in this perverse and wicked worldview they have that their father has never sat down with them and helped them understand the course of sin, the cost of sin, and the great wickedness that comes from sin. And look at where it lands them. The same place it lands us. The bait will pull us all in, but it will spread and it will ruin I was thinking about this this week as I was watching the news and you've probably seen if you've turned on the TV in the last couple weeks, the Yosemite fires, this great wildfire that's burning throughout the Yosemite National Forest. And I read just recently it has now consumed some 300 square miles. I mean, just imagine that. (laughs) You drive 300 miles this way and that way And this way, and that way. And you've covered the area of this wildfire. You know how wildfires typically start? 
with a spark, with a lightning strike, with, with one flame. And then they spread and they consume. And friends, that is a picture of what our sin does when we're unrepentant and we don't deal with it. Now the enemy will convince us that our sin only affects us. Well, it's just you. It's not affecting anybody else. But you, you need to know this. If you don't deal with your sin, then everyone around you has to deal with your sin. If you don't deal with the consequences of your sin, then everyone around you deals with the consequences of your sin. It may feel like it's isolated and it's just you right now, but it will grow and it will consume and it will affect those that you love the most. But there is hope. And we see hope even in the verses of this wicked passage. And I want to leave you with this hope this morning. Point three, God's grace is sufficient for the worst of sinners. What looks to us is just a genealogy, a a list of who comes from these children, from this perverse union, is so much more. Verse 37 says, The firstborn bore a son named Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. Verse 38, The other daughter has a son named Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites. Now, when Moses wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit, I can only imagine this was his thoughts. If you read the Old Testament, you find the Ammonites and the Moabites are a thorn in the flesh of Israel. These are wicked people who are sinful and perverse, and they are constantly pulling the people, God's people, the people of Israel down, influencing them. In fact, there are times when God says, just destroy them, just wipe them out, because they're just wickedness. And so I can imagine as Moses writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit, he has kind of an aha moment. Well, this explains it. The Moabites, the Ammonites, now wonder they are who they are. Have you ever had that experience? You're talking to someone and and you notice perhaps someone doing something they shouldn't and and you're like, "What, what is going on with this person? And they say, well, you know who his parents are. Oh, okay. What, what is wrong with that kid? Well, you know, his dad's the preacher. Oh, okay, yeah. It, we're saying, well, we know where they come from, so that explains it. And Moses writes this, and in essence, it's, well, now we know where they come from, and that explains it. Now we know why they're so wicked. But, but God in His grace, I think, is telling a greater story than Moses even understands. Because from these wicked people... He shows His grace. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. And let me show you where you see the grace of God from the Moabites and the Ammonites. Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of our Lord Jesus. It essentially goes down from Abraham on and it shows that the people that God used to bring about the Messiah. And if you've read this, if you were here when we preached through it, you know... There are some unsavory people in Matthew 1. This is not the legacy of a king that you would expect. Listen to who is included in this. Verse 7. Salmon's the father of Boaz by Rahab. If you know Rahab's story, you know how unsavory this list is. And Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Now... Ruth's name should be familiar to you. There's a 
a book of the Bible about Ruth and her story. And what you learn about Ruth is that God uses her in a great way. And what you learn about Ruth is that Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth comes from this wicked union in that cave. And through that offspring eventually comes this one who rather than leave her mother-in-law when her own husband dies and go back to the Moabites and just marry a Moabite and just live out her life with the Moabite people, she follows her mother-in-law. She marries Boaz. And we have this picture of redemption and the gospel. And ultimately, her name is written in the story of Jesus. Verse 7. Solomon... Excuse me, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a king. His father was Solomon. If you know much about Solomon, you know he had a whole lot of wives. And there's one wife of the hundreds that through him, God gives him Rehoboam, who's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And that wife's name was Namah. And the scripture doesn't tell us much about Namah other than this fact, she was an Ammonite. Namah came from that wicked union with the other daughter in that cave. And through that line comes Namah. And through that other line comes Ruth. What is the point? The point is this, friends. We so easily convince ourselves that we can somehow be so sinful and so wicked and get so far away from God that He can never use us. And that is rubbish. Because the Scripture is full of the same story over and over again. No one has gone so far that they are out of reach of God's arm. And no one has sinned so much that God cannot snatch them from that sin like He did Lot, drag them out of it, and use them for His redemptive purposes. And you and I stand at a crossroads every day. Are we going to die in that cave in shame? Are we going to repent and walk with the Lord and be included in the story of Jesus? And I can't make the decision for you and you can't make it for me, but the Scripture calls us both to make it. And this is how we make it. We repent. We turn from our sin. It doesn't matter what you've done up to this point. It doesn't matter what you came from. Can you imagine Ruth today going online to do a family tree genealogy? And getting back to that cave, you're not going to put that in your house on a quilt. That's her story. But it's not. That's what she came from. Her story is her name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It doesn't matter what you come from. It doesn't matter what your daddy did or your mama did or you did. Get over it and repent. And God will use you and use me for great purposes or wallow in it and die in a cave with nothing. That is your choice and that is my choice. I pray that all of us would remember that and would live a life of repentance and faith and that God might so use us as He did these. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank You for the... Word that you give us, even through a passage that we want to skim over. And through the wickedness we see in Genesis 19, Lord, 
even there we see the hope the gospel offers. And so, Lord, I pray this Lord's Day as I do every Lord's Day. If there is anyone here, Lord, who has yet to respond to that offer of the gospel, I pray they would repent and have faith. And Lord, for so many here, Lord, many of whom I know them and I know their stories and I know they know how sin ruins. Because there are many here who bear the scars of sin. Some their sin, some the sin of others. Lord, remind them today of the grace that the gospel offers us. That you pick us up where we are. You don't ask us to clean ourselves up first. Lord, you just call us to repent and have faith. And I pray they would and I pray I would. And that we might walk in faith together. Lord, I pray that ours would be the story that is Jesus' story. And not the one that ends in ruin in a cave. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.